When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, Rabbit Horrors. Hello, Kat. Good to see you again. It's very nice. It's nice to be back in our proper studio, isn't it? I know. Yes, I'd we like did it get farmed here. out once, didn't we? Well, it was oh, all right. Well. <laughs> but I kind of like it here. And also, there's a really good. Have you been to the Venezuelan fast food place? No, oh, missed goodness. that one. It's like a sort of burger barn thing with pulled whatever you want in it and yes. beans. Oh, my God, it's so good. Oh. Just around the corner. Well, local knowledge. Maybe the okay. disembodied voice has chowed down there. No, he hasn't. No. Oh, well. Oh, well. Sounds anyway. a bit exotic for the disembodied voice. I know. He's a fish finger sarny kind of man, isn't he? There's a lovely fish finger bar around the corner. <laughs> Excellent. And we did try and set ourselves as a sort of extra challenge last week of finding something that linked all three subjects today. Mm. I have to admit, I wasn't very successful. I failed. So far. I couldn't. I couldn't. No, well, nothing that's broadcastable anyway. I, fa- <laughs> I found a website, but it's nothing I can really offer in this forum. <laughs> Let's not go down that well, you did the research, Richard. This is a rarity. Obviously, there's niche and there's super niche. Can I say, you've won the last two, so it's a bit sickening. A man who doesn't research and wins two in a row is Uh, uh, not uh, a friend uh, of mine. I know. I do research. I do research. I like to give the appearance of not researching. Just talking it from the air. No, he's trying to unnerve us by making it seem like he... Just yes. comes out with it. It's true. Right. Uh, it's psychological warfare. <laughs> it's not enough to win. You must lose. <laughs> exactly. Right? I've always associated that cruelty t- with you, actually, Richard, when I'm with you. Yeah. That sort of ruthless touch. It's mm. what made the church Excuse so Excuse me. Richard's <laughs> best love vicar over here. Thank you. If only well, they knew. I think <laughs> someone very close to you once said you weren't a national treasure, you were a national trinket. Borderline national trinket. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, and then my PA actually said I was surrounded by people. I was doing a thing, and there were people that would be very, really nice to me. Go, oh, he's so lovely. Oh, lovely. And as he went away, she went, My God, if only they knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, people will be getting to know you even better now. We can oh. let these sort of snippets come out of them. Terrifying. So it would work. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> but shall we move on to our topics for this week? Yes. So see what rabbit holes you fell down, and you're going to be taking us to the world of falconry this time. Yes, I was really intrigued by this one because I thought I knew what it was. I thought it was medieval courtly love and a part of the sort of romantic history of Europe. The art of falconry, which essentially is training a bird to kill meat for human consumption, goes back way beyond 
the rudimentary moments of medieval life in Europe to we're not quite sure. But many thousands of years ago, we have evidence of what looks like falconry on Egyptian tombs. And in various, you know, whether it's in Japan or China, there are representations of falconry going back thousands of years. But we're not sure if it's falconry as everyone listening would understand it. Because uh, there's a concept among falconers today that a lot of the ancient falconry was really sending a bird up to frighten birds down and then they'd be caught in nets rather than being taken in talons and brought to earth. We know that the Bedouins were very big practitioners of falconry. They were living off a simple diet of dates and milk, etc. And Protein from the sky was a very welcome source of nutrition for them. Protein from the sky, what a lovely phrase. (laughs) Manna from heaven. Well, I suppose, equivalent. And so they were looking for meat to live off, and it would be, actually also hares would be caught in the desert. Very important. And maybe Arabs transmitted the skills of falconry, because it's a very skillful job or pastime, to the ancient Romans, and they may have brought it around Europe. We know in Japan it fluctuated. It became very popular, well, 1,500 years ago. There are elements of it having been used in Japan beforehand. And the Japanese were so impressed by the unbelievable skill of a Chinaman who was staying, a Chinese gentleman who was a falconer staying in their court, that they were determined to keep him for themselves. He wanted to go home. And they essentially chose the most beautiful, available bride for him. And he married her and then passed on his secrets to their daughter. So an early Japanese falconer was considered uh, the great falconer of Japan. We also have, in certain courts in Europe, the chief falconer becoming a very important position indeed. There's one court where the falconer was the fourth most important person in the whole court. As a ceremonial thing, or actually as a falconer? As the falconer. And after a particularly good day's hunting with the falcon, the king would have to get up and congratulate him in public. It was a very important part of life. So we do get to a point where falconry was used for everyday people. The yeoman farmers would use falconry. We have laws in England trying to protect crops because the falconers would go everywhere, even through to Buddhist temples overseas, banning falconry within a mile of their premises because of the trampling of crops there. But of course, the history of the common man is not as recorded as that of the aristocrats and and royalty of ancient times. And we know that falcons became hugely prized gifts among kings, that the most important falcon source in Europe was Norway, in fact, Kat, your homeland. Excellent. Fascinating. And they were brought from Norway. They mainly came, when they came to England, to the Norfolk port of Kings Lynn, where they were traded directly for grain going back to Norway. There it's was like other, a Hanseatic thing. Yes, a Hanseatic League. So mm. Kings Lynn was Falcons part of the Hanseatic League. Yeah. Yes. Fascinating. And then you have also the European centre of falconry distribution from Scandinavia was Bruges and Flanders generally, but Bruges in particular. And they became incredibly prestigious objects. So if we go to the story of El Cid, the famous Spanish nobleman, when he was disgraced before his greater years of triumph when he fought against the Moors, the one thing he regretted as he looked around his house as he was basically broken to the ranks of the normal man, he looked at in in a poem of the time, open doors and gates without locks, empty patches stripped of cloaks and mantles, stripped of their falcons and their mewed goshawks. It was the loss of his falcons that meant as much as the loss of his home in many ways. 
And we have also in a, a very ancient work, Bandrello's Novellino, the Emperor Frederick had a falcon that was worth more to him than a city. But there was a hierarchy among falcons which the kings wanted to be respected. And even though Frederick had this unbelievably valued falcon, when he found that it had killed an eagle, which was above the falcon in its status, he had the falcon beheaded. So there is also an ancient book of St. Albans from the 1400s, 1486, which gives a, a list of the ranks of the royalty and aristocracy and which falcon they were allowed to use. There was a status the last line of which is a kestrel for knaves, which was the, the original title of that 60s book, Kez, which a became a movie. And you basically had to stick to those. Falconers today say the list doesn't make sense because some of the higher falcons that went to the higher nobility were less useful than the ones at the bottom. The really important birds for sport, if you were chasing a falcon in, in medieval England, for instance, were what they called the high birds, the birds that flew really high, because then you could watch the, the hunt for a long time. And these were cranes and herons. Herons are actually remarkably fast. And they used to train the falcons to attack herons if a falcon brought one down, I'm afraid they used to incapacitate the heron to make it easier to attack and then reward the falcon with some marrowbone from the heron as well as some chicken meat. Question. Yes. How do you train a bird of prey not to eat the prey? Well, one of the most important parts of a falconer's art is feeding the bird correctly. If you overfeed it, it's not going to hunt. If you underfeed it, it's going to die. They get weighed several times a day and it's absolutely essential that they're at the right weight because they're very delicate beings. They can easily fall apart and just die. So it's an extraordinary art. It's not something you can just do. I mentioned Kez, the movie from the, the 60s. The boy actor who was the, the central figure in that, who trains a castrol, yeah. he had to train for three hours a day just to do the very basics for quite a long time before the film to get it right, to look convincing. You know, it's not something that can be just taken up. And it's now, I mean, since the enclosure of land from the 1700s, the increasing accuracy of guns, falconry started to die out and is now very much a specialist pastime. It's not something that everyone does. Hard to manage people sort of going, oh, hooray, you've brought a mouse. You know, so you, you kind of expect <laughs> Will you reward them? protein is more readily available and in greater quantities elsewhere, isn't it? Well, that's true. But it's the, I think those who practice falconry would sort of look at the art of it as, as the essential <coughs> part. Yeah. I mentioned, you know, going back to the ancient times too, the story of Tristan and Isolde. In the original uh, account of it, the great German account of this uh, tragedy, the way they capture Tristan is by telling him that there are some freshly arrived falcons from Norway on a ship, and then they kidnap him once he goes to look at them. They were irresistible as these status symbols and, and things of great beauty. The black tulip of their day. Well, exactly that, yeah. yes. The birds would be transported inside cages, as they were known. Quite rough handling, you know, even though these were incredibly valuable birds. But you'd have a special man carrying them, maybe 20 in a cage, or essentially a cage. And they used to do this thing, it sounds so awful, I'm afraid. If they were transporting them, they would put a stitch through their eyelid. Apparently this calms them down, I have no idea why. Maybe it's so that they can't see things. And mainly they'd be transported at night, so they wouldn't be on edge from hearing birdsong. Where would they end up? They King would Lee. end up in a muse, a muse 
is somewhere for falcons. That's how they started. Mm-hmm. It comes from the French mm-hmm. muet, which is to molt. And essentially, you look at even ancient parts of London, medieval times, Trafalgar Square was a muse for the royal palace where the falcons could molt. Molting was an incredibly dangerous time. Birds could die very easily during this fragile state of transition with their feathers dropping out. It was very important not to put them back into falconry too soon because uh, they could get very badly damaged. And a damaged falcon is a useless falcon. So my favourite fact about falconry is, of course, the gruesome aspect of what do you do if somebody steals your falcon? Mm. And this reflects how prized these birds were in various parts of Europe. There were areas of Austria where you would be fined to an extraordinary amount, and if you couldn't pay, you'd be blinded so that you couldn't do it again. Henry VIII had a actually remarkably relaxed for him punishment if you stole somebody's falcon or went onto their property and stole from the nest a bird. You'd be jailed for a year and a day. Before him, Edward III, who's one of our more exacting monarchs, he would put you to death. But maybe that was preferable to the Burgundian law, which said that if you were caught having stolen somebody's bird, the bird had to take six ounces of flesh from your breast. It would peck it out. It would actually actually be gouging out the flesh from you. Well, you'd notice six ounces. Yes, it's quite a lot, isn't it? I don't know how you'd measure it as it came off. (laughs) The Burgundians would... would, Were you before and after? (laughs) The Burgundians were terrible for punishment. They liked to tear people apart with four horses. Mm. Which is what happened to the attempted assassin of Louis XV, (sighs) Damion. He had a rough old end. He said today is not going to be much fun as he was taken out to be dealt with. He had hot pincers tearing his flesh apart. Lead poured into him. Lead poured into him and then then torn in four. You said I always go on to these gruesome subjects, don't you, Charles? Well, usually I'm given them, (laughs) but when I'm not given them, I I seek them out anyway. Can I tell you a falcon story? Yes. So I'm to a friend of mine who's a vicar. And she did a funeral a while ago. And at the graveside of the burial, they decided it'd be nice to release a dove as to symbolise the ascent of the departed to the realms of heaven. It would be pretty. So she did a thing and they released the dove and it went up into the... It was immediately taken by a sparrow hawk. And there was a spatter of blood and feathers on all the mourners looking up as the dove was destroyed, ripped apart. Terrible. If you're a dove, you don't yes. want to meet a sparrow hawk, do you? Well, have you ever heard... I was walking... Uh, in the countryside about a year ago, and I heard this pop. And that is the noise of a pigeon being hit at full speed. You know, these birds are extraordinarily quick. A peregrine falcon is, I believe, the fastest animal in the world. They go 180 miles an hour in descent when they're screaming down at you. Is that why you think the the prestige was such, was that they were just seen as so optimised for Mm. predation that any warlike culture would think, yeah, we'll have some of that. But yeah, clearly quite good symbols, aren't they? And you get them, so even... In heraldry. um, Yeah, but also in battles, there's this brilliant, the Battle of Moulton. Yeah, absolutely right. There's a hawk in there um, being sent up. So this is the battle, one of the battles, there's a Viking. um, One of the great battles. Yeah, exactly. 991, I think. Yes, that's right. Where the salt comes from. Yeah. And there's this wonderful old English poem describing the entire battle. And it includes at the beginning a hawk being sent up. He released all his hawks before the battle as this great symbol of we are now unleashing ourselves on the invader. Like sending your aircraft over. 
yeah, also a gesture of huge confidence that they're going to come back. Yes. There were rewards right from the beginning. You find James the Fourth of Scotland offering huge rewards for his errant hawks because if they go away, you're in big trouble. And that became more of an issue once firearms were produced. Yeah. People would shoot them because they were such a pest. A, a rogue falcon would be a, a big problem. It's a poem, isn't there? An orient of Tatey's poem about a hawk in which it's from a hawk's perspective of the hawk thinking that the hawk is the apex of creation because you would wouldn't you mm. I suppose until someone well, came it's like a shark isn't it in that it's it hasn't got many predators and it's going to kill what it really has got lined up yeah mm. hawk roosting is the uh ted hughes poem uh, hawk just discussed. Mm. Mm. um charles you're right the fastest animal is the peregrine falcon when flying horizontally it can reach 55 miles an hour but when flying downhill downhill when attacking downhill it will uh, reach more than 200 Goodness. miles an hour. Imagine being be... hit by that. It's not a small bird either. Oh, a BBC bird. documentary pitted a peregrine named Lady against a free-falling skydiver equipped with a speedometer and a lure. And the skydiver clocked in at 158 miles an hour and Lady, who hurtled past him, surpassed 180. Eat my shorts. Um, <laughs> well, it might. Can I say that was absolutely <laughs> fascinating, Charles. That was richly larded with stuff I didn't know. The thing about Muse, I'd, no, I'd never heard that no, before. Yeah. Interesting. And also the importance of the dog. I know you're a huge dog lover. Both of you are huge dog lovers. And they used to get the maximum out of the hawk. You didn't want it damaged. It, it, say it takes a heron down, the heron's still alive. The heron can be a real problem yeah. with its beak. So dogs <coughs> would be paired off with the falcon, they would live with it and race in to kill the bird on the ground before it could do any damage. Amazing. Well, thank you for that, Charles. We're going to move on to Richard now. Hello. And so there's so many puns and jokes we can make about this, but that's... We're not going to do that, no, Can you just talk us through the urinal? The please? urinal. Imagine if you'd like to catch... I don't know if I do, but do I? <laughs> well, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the greater run of Kutch, where India borders Pakistan. And there I went to an extraordinary archaeological site, which I'm sure you know, one of the great archaeological sites in the world from the Haparan civilization, the Indus Valley civilization, yes. one of the most ancient, two and a half thousand years BC. And there's a wonderful site there. I don't know if you've been, I'm sure you know all about it, but a wonderfully excavated site. What were they doing in that part of the world two and a half thousand years ago? Well, I'll tell you what they were doing plumbing, full of reservoirs, cisterns, culverts, and also the means for disposing of human waste. Now, that seems to us to be an absolute no-brainer. The first thing you want to do if you want to live in a civilised way is to have the infrastructure and the technology to provide for the taking away of human waste because nobody wants to live in shit and piss, not to put too fine a point upon it. Am I right? Well, actually, lots of people do, and lots of people did. Interesting, the decline of the Indus Valley civilization, that part of the world, for centuries and centuries and centuries after, open defecation was how people disposed of what they needed to dispose of in India and in what we now call Pakistan. But Rome was, of course, very good on this. Here's a nasty punishment, because I know how much you like them, Charles. There's a story <laughs> that the sort of first use of technology to get rid of human waste, urine, was a Roman soldier who pissed in an aqueduct because he couldn't how he was bursting. And anyway, the aqueduct did the job, but unfortunately it took the piss into the water supply for the city, which didn't go down very well. And he was isolated and found for this and was castrated as a punishment for doing that. Sorry to tell you, but that's true. Well, I don't know if it's true, but that's in the notes. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so the Romans had quite elaborate ways of getting rid of, you know, as soon as you start building cities, you need to do something about human waste. So there are various ways of doing that. The Emperor Vespasian, he, you might say, was the sort of pioneer of the urinal because in ancient Rome, he revived actually a tax that had been imposed by Nero on the disposal of urine. Urine, though had value because it was much prized by bleachers and by tanners because the ammonia in it contributed to those particular crafts. So that was useful. And also getting rid of it was useful because nobody wanted it around. So Vespasian made a fortune actually out of imposing this urine tax. And there were terracotta receptacles left for people to piss in so it could be taken away and managed. And so that was a smart thing to do. You know where it really got exciting though was Paris. And if you're looking, if you're interested in urinals, and indeed I am, Paris would be the place to go, the 1830s in particular. The sort of prefect of Paris was the Comte du Rambutin that time. He was a remarkable person. And he believed in air, hygiene, shade. He wanted to rebuild Paris, which in the 1830s was an absolute midden. People used to just relieve themselves where they stood. So he was responsible for introducing whole loads of measures to make sure that Paris was more a hygienic place to live and less noisome place to live. And so he sort of invented the pissoir, or as it was called then, the colonne rambutant. But he didn't really like being associated. And what basically was cast iron work. The pissoir, which you might even just remember because there was still a feature of life in Paris up until the late 70s, early 80s. But you know them all from art, don't you? The sort of cast iron columns into which gentlemen could momentarily conceal themselves from the gaze of onlookers and relieve themselves into a drain. Rambutin, they particularly liked being associated with that, so they became known as Vespasienne instead. Mm. They colon Vespasienne after Vespasian, the emperor. And it kind of revolutionised, unfortunately, use of revolutionised, actually, because 1830, that whole period of the middle years of the 19th century, revolutions galore, and they were constantly torn up and used as barricades. But anyway, once things had calmed down, they sort of settled. It became very much a feature of Parisian life. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. There's one left, actually, just outside the Sante prison, which is kept as a sort of reminder of the great day of what we would know as the Pissoir. And there people would go and relieve themselves, and it made Paris a much more pleasant place to live if you were a man. Very different Mm. for women, of course. The urinary leash. This is not a concept which... I wish to detain you with long. But as anyone will know, that you are, if you are a woman on the move, then you are limited in that movement because you just need to do a pee sometimes. Easier for men to do that, harder for women because it's more apparatus and a slightly more complicated procedure. So it took a little while before people started noticing that women were rather unfairly treated in this. But there was a, women's conveniences began to arrive at the end of the 19th century. In fact, it was so shocking, the sort of women having to use a convenience, that it wasn't really spoken about in polite society. One of the great pioneers of that actually was George Bernard Shaw, by the way, who was very keen that women should have the means to relieve themselves and to sever the urinary leash. You'll know, of course, the borderloo that in the courts of Versailles, for example, where you'd have to stand around for a long time. If you go to collections of French porcelain, you'll see these things, you think, that's a funny-looking gravy boat. It's not a gravy boat. It looks a little bit like one, but it is a tiny personal pissoir into which women could relieve themselves on those long hours of court duty. The other interesting thing about the pissoir of Paris was that they became popular with a particular subculture within Parisian life, and that was 
you gay man, as we would say now, because they were places where people could meet and also be in circumstances which would allow for a certain element of gratification, which might be hard to come by otherwise. You see what I mean? And one of those is a celebrated case of a right-wing Catholic French politician who was discovered in a pissoir having a bit of unscheduled fun with somebody else, which caused him to lose his job. He resigned, actually. It's a famous example of somebody full of righteousness being discovered to have perhaps unrighteous... Like the American politician who had a very wide stance. Do you remember the one? Exactly. Yes. He said he was researching. <laughs> He's researching. <laughs> a moment of madness, we might say ourselves. <laughs> but it is interesting, the Pissoir does provide an opportunity for people to come together in ways that polite society wouldn't normally allow. In French gay slang, they became known as tasse, became known as tea rooms, and the pissoirs themselves became known as tasse, as in cup. Tea room trade was what it became known in America, and in Britain, famously, the cottage. In Victorian England, where conveniences were then built, urinals were built then, it's sort of little brick outbuildings done in a slightly cottagey, rustic style, as you might expect with British architecture of that period, English architecture of that period. So the cottage became a thing, and cottaging became the verb to describe by which gay men would make friends with other gay men with special hugs, if I could put it that way, and so on. Um, so that was an interesting thing. Whole subcultures built up around them. The other interesting thing about, well, there's so many interesting things about urinals. One of my favourite urinals is the urinal which really began conceptual art, and it is the Fountain, one of the most famous works of art of the 20th century by Marcel Duchamp, the first ever ready-made. It was 1917, it was an exhibition of modern art in New York, and Marcel Duchamp turned up with The Fountain. It was simply a urinal, which he turned through 90 degrees and signed R. Mutt and put it in an exhibition. The exhibition was obliged to take it because he said it was open to all comers, but they didn't actually show it because even in that vanguard of people, the idea that you could take a urinal and claim that it was art was still quite a shocking concept. So they put it actually behind a partition. But it is perhaps the first work of art of its kind, the first ready-made, the first icon of conceptual art. It went missing. Nobody knows where that first was. My goodness, if you could find that, you'd be uh, unfortunate. Mm. But Duchamp being Duchamp and a ready-made being a ready-made, he made, I think there are 17 still in existence that you can still get. Caused a huge hoo-ha as well. Some people thought it was a Buddha. Some people thought it was a way of looking at the differences between male and female genitalia. Nobody really knew what it was. Mm. To us, of course, in our age of you know post-Damien Hurst and freeze and all that kind of thing. We're sort of used to the notion of conceptual art, but it was a radical new thing in those days. So if you were knocking around a sale room or a second-hand shop and you were to find a urinal signed in thick black paint, R. Mutt. Do you know why it was R. Mutt, by the way? No. Two reasons. One was that the company in America that made urinals was called Mott & Co., but you didn't want to call it that. But very popular then, in fact, it had a lot of 70 years of life, was the comic strip Mutt and Jeff. Oh, Mutt yes. and Jeff, used in Cockney Rhyming Slam for death, or you'd say mutton now. So that was why it was, an R was for Richard, which meant money bags. And Duchamp, I think, was playing with this idea of a pissoir, a urinal, also being something to do with spending. Oh. Spending a penny, do you know where that comes from? Oh. Really? Was that the admission? Berwick upon Tweed. There was a convenience for ladies installed in Berwick-upon-Tweed at the end of the 19th century. The cost of using it was one penny, mm. and that's where spending oh, a penny comes see. from. Well, going back a very long way, I, I, the person who instigated public loos in London 
was Henry I's wife, Matilda of Scotland. And they were pretty basic. Yeah. So you were sitting, you weren't using urinal. Yeah. And they were open, I think about 58 stalls in each, but not, sorry, 58 seats in each. Yeah. Can you imagine sitting next to somebody and going through whatever you were going through in a totally public way? It's like the Roman ones as well. They've got these rows. Oh, and you had the log, didn't you? The Vikings. <laughs> well, I think that's the Norseman version of it. I'm not sure I mean, this is why one. I have specified urinal, because obviously yes. the means of disposing of urine goes back forever. And it's rather different from the means of disposing of food. Although, interesting, in Grafton Underwood, the village in Northamptonshire, which is my sort of home village, there's a little barn there, and there you can still see there's a long plank with holes sawed in it. Mm. And until Grafton Underwood got Maine's water, which was in the 1960s, mm. men on one side, women on the other. But you would sit alongside your neighbour, reading the paper, doing what you had to do. Mm. Autre temps, autre moi. Goodness, what a... Do you want my favourite fact? Yes. I love it. Unless you've got more urinal. No, no, no. no, no I, I think no. I'm all out. It's such a difficult them. one to chip in on because I'm going to sound like a pure, I'm going to sound like a 13 year old boy if I make any jokes. So please carry on. No, I'm I, I feel we tiptoed through this one. Um, <laughs> Schiphol Airport, Amsterdam, in the 1980s, having a terrible problem with inaccurate urination at the urinals in the gentleman's conveniences in that very busy hub. And the building's manager had a brilliant idea. And he had painted onto the urinal at the spot where one would ideally aim flies. Yes, such a good thing. It caused an 80% reduction in yeah. unregulated splash. Because gentlemen, even if they weren't realising it, aimed at the flies. And therefore their <laughs> urine landed where he wanted it to go. Very clever. Excellent. You can actually get lots of products like having two boys and having had to potty train them years and years and years ago. There's all sorts of products to teach them these skills. So apparently that's a They're going to be thrilled you brought that up. I know. Sorry. Sorry. If I went to a, a, it was a hotel, I can't remember where it was, but there was in the gents, there was a little sign up saying, we aim to please. Will you aim to please? (laughs) Like that. Very good. Thank you, Richard. So I think that just uh, leaves it on to me this week. And I've got a very sort of chirpy topic, which is smallpox. Oh, yay. yay. Although, yeah, exactly. Well, that's a happy ending, this one. Hasn't very it? retro because, theme. Yeah. But it has a happy ending because this was, this was the, an absolutely devastating illness that was uh, officially eradicated completely in 1980 across the entire world. And there's one of these great success stories. Killed so many people between 300 and 500 million people in the 20th century, uh, 10th century alone, which is staggering. My interest in it really was from uh, one of my digs against sort of randomly I was working at Barclay Castle in, in Gloucestershire. And right next door, one part of our dig was in Jenner House Museum, which is the home of Edward Jenner. And Edward Jenner was the one who invented the vaccine for smallpox, which led to its complete eradication. And there's a little house, there's a little hut that you can go and visit, which is known as the Temple of Vaccinia. And that's where he carried out all his first vaccinations and experiments, which is amazing. And what he did, he was this brilliant doctor who grew up in in Gloucestershire and um, trained uh, as a surgeon's apprentice, went to London. I was very interested in disease and uh, had noticed that smallpox was one of these. There was a sort of treatment of it. You could take essentially part of, of the sort of pus or something from one of these um, postures that somebody had and introduce it in what was meant to be a secure way and allegedly that would cure you. It was actually really dangerous and didn't really work. 
But he noticed that cowpox, which was related to smallpox, those who were infected by cowpox seemed to be immune. So he, he noticed all these dairy maids who had gotten cowpox then didn't get smallpox. So what he did was he found one of these dairy maids, a woman called Sarah Nelms, who had lesions on her hands and arms, took those lesions and material from them and inoculated an eight-year-old boy called James Phipps. So gave him cowpox deliberately. How do you have that conversation with his mother? <laughs> I was thinking that how, as what a mother, do you go, yes, go yeah. on, take my son. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just You're going to be famous him? forever. <laughs> and he was. But so he got cowpox and he was, he was fine. And then she went, presumably had another conversation with his mother <laughs> to say, so now having done that, I'm going to give him an inoculation of actual smallpox. So he then went on to... to he actually... must have been a very naughty boy, I think. <laughs> I think he possibly. <laughs> Trusting mother. So he injects him with smallpox and he was absolutely fine and he didn't get ill. So that was the development, essentially the first step of the development of the Amazing vaccine. moment that was. But but interestingly, there was lots of anti-vaccination, just like today, at the time as well. So there was lots of opposition to him. But this disease really goes back thousands of years. We know that it seems to have appeared possibly around about 10,000 BC, something like that. The first quite likely evidence is actually one of the Egyptian pharaohs, so Ramesses V, who died in 1156 BC. His mummy, his, his mummified uh, head has evidence of skin lesions that were quite likely uh, were smallpox. Oh. And it was reported of in lots of different cultures in China, in Indian texts as well, right about the same time. And then somehow it, it moves to Europe. And until quite recently, we didn't quite know when that happened. Rome probably had it. The Antonine Plague that killed 7 million people yeah. may well have been smallpox. We don't quite know. And then somehow it gets to Northern Europe, certainly by the time of crusades, that's spreading it around a lot. But in 2020, we seem to have found out who actually caused that spread to Northwestern Europe. I'm going to guess it's you. Is it the Vikings? <laughs> it may well have been. Yeah. Yes. You see, we, no, we now know. Imagine you see a Viking sail <coughs> on the horizon. None of it's going to be good news. Oh, you see them going away. You think, well, I've survived the rape and pillage. Hurrah, I've just got this itchy spot there. <laughs> yes, exactly. But this is actually really extraordinary. It's so interesting. And I found out about this. There's a new paper published actually during the pandemic, during COVID, I mean, we're all about, you know, spreading disease and, and all of that. And I was writing my book, which was all about contact between the East, especially the, the Silk Roads and the Middle East and Northwestern Europe. And it turned out that this was a new ancient DNA study. So never really looked at before. We can now with ancient DNA look at ancient skeletons and find evidence of all these ancient diseases. And one study that looked at about 1,800 samples from all across uh, Eurasia and the Americas. So they looked at uh, all these samples going back 30,000 years to find the earliest possible evidence of smallpox or the variola virus. And they found 13 samples with the virus in them. 11 of them were of people who were either from Scandinavia or somehow linked to the Vikings, which is extraordinary. Nothing before the Viking Age at all. Can I say, so... During recent episodes, Kat's been really pleased with the Norwegian yeah. ownership of the paperclip, stealing books from monks, and now the spreading of smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so versatile. <laughs> it's just so versatile. It's a mixed record. Yes, I know. The Falcons, providing the best Falcons in Europe is a good thing. That was thing. your fact. That, that wasn't me. That well, was, okay, you know, but it's still... Claiming the Scottish composer Grieg is yes. a Norwegian composer. Yes. <laughs> we haven't forgotten that. Come yet. on, come on. Okay, we're going to have to fight about that one afterwards. <laughs> now, I'm trying to get balance. So, so good things bad things. But I think what was interesting about it is how this happened and the fact that it is happening in the Viking Age because 
what they're doing, actually, what's happening with these sites and, and, and the contact is that they're opening this back route through Europe. So going from Scandinavia down the eastern river routes, trading things like fur. And we know that disease travels mm. with fur. And in fact, during the pandemic, I don't know if you remember, there were all the, was it the minks in Denmark that had to be culled because they had COVID very early on, sort of tens of thousands of millions, I think. So they're vectors, particular vectors of infection. Yes, they, they are. are. So CJD, um, the minks were big transmitters of Kreutz-Jakob's disease yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Leprosy, leprosy was brought to, to Britain, again, sorry, Scandinavians, through squirrel fur trade. <laughs> so they're well, all coming in. So we have this contact going. So we have all the, the fur trade going on so, and smallpox. Is it because of what lives in their fur? Is it because of some kind of... Well, where's the pathogen? How does it get into I don't you? Know. I don't vicious know things. Either. They're very they vicious. Like that. I don't know. Is it's it because they're eating everything? I mean, they're real predators. I don't know. Maybe it is a flea or something, like a rat would carry. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We had an issue with released mink in Grafton Underwood because there was some animal rights people understandably released some mink who were being farmed for fur, but the mink, the mink went feral and they ate all our ducks. Oh. Pushed out the otters, didn't they? Yeah. As well. So back to more that was a good cheer, idea. Cheerful <laughs> topic of the smallpox. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the things I do really like is we can actually see it coming in England. So there's one of these earliest samples is from St. John's College in Oxford, where there was a, a mass grave of uh, Vikings, actually. So these were the Vikings who died, killed by... Smallpox. The Anglo-Saxons. Oh, um, so oh is, not smallpox. Yeah, no, no. But one of them had smallpox. Mm. So one of these who came in. So this is probably one of the earliest cases of it actually coming in because we have another site in Denmark. There's also a genetic link between one of the people who died in this mass grave and somebody who died in a site in Denmark. They're, they're just... This is you and your old bone specialist. I know, I know. Yeah. I can't, you, not, I can't not talk about topic. it. Yeah, okay. We have a direct link of smallpox, early smallpox, because we have two relatives, one in Denmark, one in England. They are related and they both have smallpox. That's how long does the pathogen leave a mark or how long? Well, so these are, I mean, these are, some of them are 1300 years old, these samples. Yeah. So that is the oldest anyone has ever been able to discover that we don't know if that is because it doesn't survive much longer than that it probably does survive longer but we just haven't looked but at it yet that's so interesting there about leaving a mark richard because people who recovered from smallpox had terrible disfiguration yes and so in 18th century england for instance for a maid to have a sort of unblemished complexion was considered particularly beautiful because because there are quite a lot of people who didn't well, they have they been yeah. oh really beethoven one of his nicknames was pock face or something because he was so marked by smallpox. This is one of the reasons why it was, um, so not only was it such a deadly disease, I think it has a 30% mortality rate at least, but even if you do survive, you can be so, so badly transfigured that it's yes. actually a, a what, what huge it? problem. It's pustules, isn't it? But, but what is it, smallpox? Oh, I see. I don't <laughs> you know. looking at me. It is, I don't know what it is, but it, I mean, it's like a well, we have it. We do. Yes, we have somebody on hand. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a virus. It looks like, don't we? We know what yeah. it does to you. But... It's a virus. The virus is called variola virus. I don't know if that helps. It does help. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. Okay, that clears it all up. A deadly virus. <laughs> Smallpox. Do you know, in, when was Jenner? Was he the end of the 18th century? Yes. So he was born in 1749. I know this. In my last parish, Finden, one of my predecessors, 
Father Paul inoculated or vaccinated the entire parish against the smallpox at his own expense. Oh. I think it was in the 1820s. Yeah. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. And also, I mean, this is what Jenner did as well. So he provided vaccinations for free. So people could come to this little hut they had in his, his garden, in his house. So all the poor would be vaccinated for free. And there's also, there's some ancient maps from that time period where you see all these little vaccination huts marked on them. So these were for people to go and... Um, but Richard, we were vaccinated. I, I was vaccinated against smallpox as yeah, a child. Yeah. But um, so my great-great-grandfather was an anti-vaxxer and he was one of the leaders of the movement against vaccination in Kettering in the 1860s and it was seen then. These were non-conformist in religion, liberal in politics, and they saw this as an imposition on them by authority. And he was fined by five shillings, I think, by the magistrate for refusing to allow his children to be vaccinated, which was compulsory. Yeah. So a public health measure was seen mm. actually as an infringement of personal liberty. And we got that again, didn't we? Yes. And some of those early uh, protests against it as well, it was interesting because actually, although he'd found the way of doing it, actually to provide those vaccinations was really difficult. And lots of different people started to get involved doing their own vaccinations. Some of them did it really badly mm. and actually spread actual smallpox instead of uh, doing a good thing. So it caused a lot of problems. So I think if you didn't have a very controlled way of doing it, you couldn't really have it that trust. It could go wrong very it quickly. Go very, <laughs> very, very badly wrong. It goes wrong. back to the mother of that boy, wasn't yes. it? I think it's a very invasive thing. You're going to let this person who you don't know, who's going to scratch a pathogen, into the arm of your child. But, but Jenna must have been very persuasive. There was evidence. Well, maybe she just... Maybe she was paid, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I don't what actually know the full, full story. Yeah. So Jenna was... I mean, obviously, a lot of people were against it, but initially, he was uh, given a statue in Trafalgar Square, actually. And uh, in 1858, the statue was unveiled by Prince Albert. But it was taken down again four years later by the protesters. So it was moved to Kensington Gardens. And part of that was the anti-vaccination campaigners, but also military leaders who felt that a civilian doctor shouldn't be in the same place as all the nation's war heroes. Um, Richard, didn't you have a connection with the lady who discovered the vaccination for... COVID. Well, yes, I did. Professor at Oxford, whose name I can't remember. She, what's her name? Something. Sarah Gilbert. Yes, I was at kindergarten with her. Her mother, Hazel Gilbert, taught me at St. Peter's School in Kettering. That's and I like to think that maybe you helped in, in some way. Yes. Something yeah. I said <laughs> just contributed. Sort of maybe you told her about the chemistry set you got for Christmas, and, yeah. and she thought, "Well, that would be nice." That might be it. Or, well, no, yeah, we can't be certain about it, but you know, I know you don't like to steal anyone's no. thunder. No, I hate that. <laughs> Can I share my favourite fact yes, as well? Please. That I discovered. So there was a treatment uh, by somebody called Doctor Sydenham in the 17th century that for smallpox, obviously before vaccinations and things, uh, lots of different things. No fire in the room. Windows had to be open. You had to draw the bed close no higher than the patient's waist. And then finally, the most sort of crucial part was that the patient had to be given 12 bottles of small beer every 24 hours. That's good. And very that English cure. Yes. <laughs> I think that's very, uh, very helpful. That would have swung it. Yeah. Small beer like a weak beer. Ah, oh, no. Ah, that's Is a very it? good point. Know. It's meant to be a weak beer. It's what the British, the Royal Navy... Instead of water, because yes, the water supply was unreliable. Water was absolutely toxic. Didn't they do that at Eton? Didn't all the boys at Eton get beer instead of water? Well, I when I was at Eton, we still had a pub we were allowed to go to. We were allowed two pints a day. From what really? age? Uh, from about 16. Eight. Yeah, 16. <laughs> but bizarre to think of that now. Also, you, we all worked out that two pints of pills 
was a lot stronger would go a very long way. So you have that at 11.30 and the rest of the day just swam past I you. I think I read yeah. that there was a time in, in the 19th century when the water supply, cholera I suppose, was so unreliable mm. that everyone had small beer instead because That's right. it was mm. brewed. And, yeah. and, and that was even in medieval times. It was just a safer way of doing it because, it, yes, it was fermented already. Okay. So we have a comment from our disembodied voice. Uh, smallpox, as you mentioned, is caused by the agent referred to as the variola virus which belongs to the genus Orthopox virus. The variola virus emerged three to 4,000 years ago in the east of the African continent, presumably the introduction of camels to Africa and the concurrent changes to the climate were the particular factors that triggered the divergent evolution of a cowpox-like ancestral virus and thereby led to the emergence of the variola virus. Thank you. Camelpox. Camelpox. Well, there's camels. <laughs> like, can I beasts. say, I was really hoping that you were going to mention Trafalgar Square in your urinal talk. Did you have any Trafalgar? Because that would have been a link. Because you mentioned Trafalgar Square, didn't you? Oh, yes. I did, for the Royal Muse. Yes. Was there a Trafalgar And we have, yes, we Jenna have a statue was Trafalgar in Trafalgar Square. Square. I almost had it. An open almost goal. Had and I yeah. completely missed it. We never it. saw it. So let's see then. Uh, we've got to the final point where our disembodied voice has to undemocratically choose a winner. It's you, Kat. Thank you. Was it because of Trafalgar Square? No, it was just really good. (laughs) Well, Well, thank you very much. Battle is on, I think. It's It's five to Charles, four to Kat, and three to Richard as we stand. Mm. But three recent ones I would like to say for Richard. He's got, Mm. I can tell Richard's put in a lot more work recently. I think he's doing a lot of more writing for this one. I, because it was very, I mean, both. The ones you've won recently were so devastatingly good. I hate saying that. It's fine by me. (laughs) (laughs) They were, I mean, always fascinating to hear you, but the raining down of big facts I thought was very interesting. Today, I was, yeah. Heavy artillery. The big bell. Is your memory really good? Because I cannot remember numbers. I need to have every number written down for me. I think I have, not quite an eidetic memory, but I do. You've done a lot of sermons, haven't you? Dates and numbers I remember very, very easily. Because I I can't, they to go completely nuts in my head and they could be any combination. I don't so know, it just I'm sticks. Jealous. I remember my phone numbers of people from 30 years ago. Wow, I don't Uselessly. think I remember mine. <laughs> but I am enumerate as well, which is odd. Mm. I'm totally enumerate. Are you? And impractical. Actually, I don't know what the point of me is, really. Thank God there's a podcast. Could you put could... up a shelf, Charles? <laughs> well, I mean, not directly, but I could to the point where I wanted it. someone to do it. <laughs> could you, you could. I imagine, I imagine in Norwegian schools, you all do like at least an hour of shelf putting up a week. <laughs> But also, I love, I love when I was in Norway, was just how if you're snowed in, everyone's got to know how to do stuff, right? So you do, you have to be very, I think there's, there's a, there is that, and in so many parts, if you go back in history, if you're living in uh, some fjord mountainous region, it's quite tough. It's really, really hard. You have to know how to deal with it. And you, you know, you have to know how to survive in a really cold climate. Yeah. So we teach our kids from a very young age how to dress, how to survive. We've got these 10 rules for how to survive on the mountain. You have to learn them at nursery, what to do if you get into trouble. There's a called and it's literally... What's it called? <laughs> so the rules for mountain knowledge rules, basically. And we, we teach them to little kids. I mean, even now, that's just standard. I think Norway is going to... Well, it's already conquered the world, but I think it's going to conquer the world again, really. Yeah. Every time I go there, I just think oh, it's heaven, such a great it? place. Yeah. yeah. Love it. So before we go, we have to set our topics to uh, fall into for next week. Charles, you're going to be looking into the poorhouse. 
Thank you. I'm going to be talking about eels. And Richard, you're going to be looking into terrible delicacies. Mm. You're going to actually research that by trying them, do you think? Oh, I use lutefisk. Yes. That's not terrible. Oh, come on. It's one of the worst delicacies that ever happened. Well, I've had shark biltong, which tops it, I think. Well, I've had hakal. Yes, so we've had that already, worst. haven't we? That is pretty disgusting. <laughs> really bad. Okay, well, let's uh, <laughs> let's see what you've got next week. So that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone for listening. So if you liked the podcast today, please do subscribe. Please leave us a review. And you can also suggest some more rabbit holes for us to fall down into in future episodes. Just send us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Lots of people have been doing it already. We're loving uh, your suggestions. And so please keep them coming. And each week, one of us will be writing our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in The Telegraph discussing some of our favourite facts. So check that out as well. In the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, we are all victims in waiting. Mm-hmm. So Very thank deep. you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.